0: This is Alistair Stewart of Pseudopod, the world's largest horror fiction podcast, and you're listening to The Dark Verse. There are worlds
1: between our own, and from these worlds there are written histories, both ancient and modern, to read of these testaments, scrawled in hidden places, and on other things. You must fix your eyes uncomfortably within you, and if successful, your gaze will unlock the door behind raw imagination and meet the manuscript of innumerable folios known as The Dark Bird.
0: Hello, I'm Sharkchild, and this is The Dark Verse, short stories of occult, metaphysical, and fantastical horror that will follow you to the visions of your sleep. I have a lot to talk about, and of course, an awesome story to share, but I'm going to start with this. This episode will mark the beginning of a new season of consistent Dark Verse episodes, I'm putting myself back under the Hellfire Muse to spit out Twisted Tales regularly. Two episodes every month. In conjunction with this, I'm going to ask you to join me on this journey. I want to make The Dark Verse more than just a sideshow in my life. I want to make it a career, and I want to make it a lasting avenue of entertainment for my current and future fans. I set up a Patreon campaign where you... My fans can become the Dark Versus patrons, giving monthly support to the podcast in exchange for bonus material, recognition on the Dark Versus website, and my sincere appreciation. This campaign can be found at Patreon.com/slash/TheDarkVerse. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/forward/slash/TheDarkVerse. This is a step for me in making a commitment to the Dark Verse, and I hope that you will make this commitment with me, and aid me on the quest to grow this podcast into something special. The pledge amounts are for only a dollar or three dollars, but if you pledge, you are entering into a pact between you and myself, a promise for continuous, amazing content. It would mean the absolute world to me if you became a patron of the Dark Verse. Next on the list of things to share is that the Dark Verse Volume 1 hardcover book is back in print. I'm fulfilling the rewards from the Kickstarter campaign and pre-orders this week, and I will have it back on Amazon in August. Also, orders for the Dark Verse Volume 1 on my website, shop.sharkchild.com, starting next week, will be shipping out immediately. It's back. The full Darkverse trilogy is available once more in hardcover format. Now, time to get into the good stuff. This episode is going to have a little extra pizzazz thanks to the musical genius Stills. This episode's story is sci fi horror, or what I like to call retro horror, inspired by my love of a genre of music called retrowave. I asked Stills if he would let me mix in some of his tunes with my story, and he agreed. I hope you like his music as much as I do, and if you want to check it out beyond what you hear in this episode, make sure you go to his website at stillsmusic.com. That's S-T-I-L-Z music.com. You can also just search for his name on the web, of course, and find his stuff. We are information. We've existed before this body, and we will exist beyond it, as information through one conduit or another. Faith is not separate from science. If you go far enough, they will collide. This is episode 92 of The Dark Verse, and it is entitled Inferno Bot. Technology
1: had connected the universe making space suitable for recreational and residential dwellings, travel between livable planets acceptable in duration, and old age such a slow onset that populations overran worlds. Death was still the unknown, and I wanted to find it, not by dying, but by seeking its destination. The Purple Sky mingling with aqua light from the moon in a mercurial haze crackled as if it were a pixelated gif on the horizon parallel horizontal lines of neon green staffed radiant skeletons of 12 pink cities downtown skyscrapers high on a hillside on the outskirts of the city i extended my rocket bike's rear tripodal landing gear and tipped it backwards propping its lightweight composition in the upwards position. The pearlescent finish on the burgundy metal husk sleekly reflected the slender, missile-shaped design and beauty of the chassis hidden beneath like a muscular body in skin-tight garments. I stepped up into the small, one-person cockpit, remaining in a standing position, and engaged the tinted canopy shield that slid behind me and enclosed me. After adjusting my jumpsuit, I activated the bike's launch mode. Two sharp wings jutted outward and a resin compound enveloped my body, excluding my arms and face, and compressed, securing me in human shrink wrap. A digital prompt with the options launch and disengage appeared on the visor display of my helmet. Below the launch option, a system's check icon flashed green notifying me of system-wide approval. I selected launch by focusing on its words with my eyes in double blinking. The engines on my Cosmo Burner 14 ignited, thrusting forth flames that changed from blue to yellow to red before propelling me towards the heavens. The purple sky phased to dark blue and then to black as I broke free from the atmosphere and embraced the vastness of space. I set my course through my visor, initiated autopilot, and tweaked the canopy's appearance modifier to change the star's light from white to a palette of rich violet and orange before turning up the song, The Cosmic Light, by Dark Energy Discoveries on the sound system. The two-hour journey melted away like ice on a subparticle radiator, and the music and scenery placed me in a stupor that I was not easily aroused from shrill beeping and a flashing light in my visor eventually alerted me of my upcoming arrival at my space laboratory. I activated the laboratory's landing sequence via the console in my rocket bike before shutting down the engines. Inertia took me into the laboratory's tractor beam that steadily guided it into its hold in the landing bay. A steam compound jutted out, briefly filling the cockpit and eroding the resin safety hold. I disengaged from the bike and issued a command to the laboratory's main computer to refuel and recharge it. I then exited the bay, headed down the hall a short way, turned left, and walked through the automatic door leading to the computer lab. Several desks lined the walls and a large counter sat in the middle of the computer lab. They were all riddled with tools and miscellaneous parts. Sitting in the corner of the room, between two desks, gagged and tied down to a Guidlar's magnetic slide chair with its command console deactivated, was my test subject. Her hair was short and a bluish black. Her eyes were modified to a bright neon blue. Long, laced boots ascended to the tops of her calves where they met the tight-fitting shorted jumpsuit. I called her Arcade Kid, Not because she was actually a child, she was most likely in her early 20s, but because she was so glued to Quantum Majestic's new heart-stabber game at an arcade on Mirasolus that she essentially agreed to her kidnapping, quickly acquiescing to all of my inquisitions in the hopes I would cease my pestering. Everyone in that cyber drug lair was zombified, making my task, slipping her some Y-hydroxybutyrate acid in a soda, and escorting her to a computer shuttlecraft, all the easier. I asked the laboratory's main computer to power up the core lighting in the room before I powered up on my own the spotlights above the center counter in the heart of my experiment. A robot, constructed of both salvaged and bought parts, an amalgamation of circuitry put together under a windfall of transcendent inspiration and passion. It stood as a torso and a head, purposefully built without limbs. Its torso was retrofitted with a smooth and polished custom-made medieval-style breastplate comprised of a lightweight alloy of mainly nickel and carbon to aesthetically mask its inner maze of components and wiring with a look of lustrous power. The head was a horrific-looking clump of chips and neatly organized wiring, dispersing from its back end like dreadlocks. Since my remaining work was on the head, I had yet to give it the ornamental appeal the torso had received. In my hands, I held the final piece required to complete my creation, a special, self-sufficient power supply that was currently only available in Twelping City on Divinus. I delicately connected it to its awaiting receptacle and tucked it into place in the robot's head. I briefly rubbed my hands together with excitement and eagerness and flipped on my invention so that I could install the necessary program to interface it with the main computer. A labyrinth of coding that took no less time to complete than the building of the automaton itself. The robot would work in a way similar to one computer's activity being casted upon another computer's display, except... In this instance, the robot would be a duplication of Arcade Kid's brain and autonomic nervous system in a digitized format, her essence data, so that I could see what she saw and go where she went, in presence, in thought, and, more importantly, in death. It was the monumental purpose of this device and research to track this transference of essence data from life into the beyond. Her whereabouts transmitted, interpreted, translated, and acted out digitally with the aid of enhanced electroencephalography by my robot. An illustration of what death holds. As I continue to make the final preparations for my experiment, I refuse to look at Arcade Kid. I refuse to acknowledge her as a human being in order to numb myself to the burden that lay before me. Her streaking mascara under her glistening, watered blue eyes radiated the fragility of her personhood, a storybook of humanity that proclaimed me a true vessel of evil. I could not function under such a label, and so I shunned myself from criminality and clung to the glory of crossing into scientific frontiers yet to be explored. Connecting and sinking Arcade Kit to the robot was the last step before turning her over to the lands beyond. I slid her chair next to the counter and forced onto her head a cap lined with electrodes. It had a chin strap that I pulled taut. I placed other electrodes on her chest and back. She struggled, but she was constrained well. There was nothing she could do to prevent my preparations. I keenly kept my face angled downwards away from eye contact. It took me about three hours to get the robot synced up correctly with Arcade Kid's neural activity. Once it was working, the data was stunning. I could pick and choose her memories, opening them as if they were well-organized files on a computer. My bot would analyze the data the imagery, the dialogue, the sensations, and decode them, providing me with simple phrases of summary. With every aspect of the experiment ready, I walked out of the computer lab and stopped in the gangway. The most difficult preparation was upon me, mental preparation. I closed my eyes and breathed in and out deeply. In these tranquil moments before colossal activity, I fought an inner battle. The battle to push away my moral mind and sever myself from the consciousness of my impending actions, I sought desensitization. To enact concretely the initialization of my cerebral antipathy, I began counting down from ten to zero in my mind, upon which zero would be the instantaneous ignition of the experiment 10 9 8 7 6 5 4 3 2 One. Zero. I opened my eyes, walked into the computer lab, grabbed the syringe containing pentobarbital X from a drawer along the wall, affixed the needle that was beside it, and, without hesitation of any kind, plunged the instrument into Arcade Kid's forearm and pushed, sending the dosage into her bloodstream. She writhed abhorrently, But once the compound found its place within her system, she relaxed, blinked a few times, took several labored breaths, swallowed rigidly, and then faded away from life. Arcade Kid was dead. I breathed a sigh of relief as beads of sweat consumed my face and my hands trembled. It was over. Beeps on my inner face awoke me from my stupor and instilled excitement. Seamlessly, the virtual computer brain in my automaton continued to relay dynamic information following death, tapping into subspace pathways of existence. As I had theorized, the data that comprised the subject moved on and my robot was tracking its journey. I was receiving coordinates of three locations on my interface. These obscure positions were figurative points in unknown space, space assuredly not present in the physical plane of reality, but reportable as quantifiable data. This data was collected through a mechanism similar to a ping test, where packets of information were sent to the subject and a response was measured. This perplexed me as I had anticipated a single migration, But the important thing was that there was indeed post-mortem presence and activity. Despite there being these three locales of post-death activity, only one gave off cohesive data. Through its complex programming, the bot was able to examine and decipher its readings, like learning a new language in seconds, extrapolating comprehensible details. However, in order for it to be accessible for me, the data had to be communicated in a relatable medium, words. I needed to see what it saw in words or its reporting was meaningless. What did the entity feel? What visual perception did it have? Where was it? There were no numbers that could convey this information. So just as my automaton could convert Arcade Kid's memories into words, it could now also, after interpreting the new essence data, convert whatever the entity or soul or spirit was experiencing into words. The language was at first garble on my interface, but the robot ceaselessly computed and progressed. Soon there were sporadic words within the garble, and then there were more words, and then finally there was cohesion, fragments of understandable syntax, as the bot cracked the puzzle. No sight, but seeing. No sounds, but listening. No voice, but speaking. No body, but being. No thoughts, but perceiving. No feeling but pain, pulsating pain, never ceasing, order and swirling chaos, not light, not darkness. It was remarkable, a written description of the beyond as witnessed by a first-hand account. It was everything I could have ever hoped for, and a breakthrough in science that would shake and shatter the foundation of all belief systems. Elated feelings tinged my flesh, and I eagerly read on. Not welcomed, but home. Alone, but surrounded. Near and far, but no movement. Clarity, glory, and tragedy. Truths unadulterated. Wisdom innate. Existence in fullness. Sorrow in understanding. Comfort in the pain. Acceptance. Of eternity. My thoughts swam in swarms within my mind and my heart raced. These were simple yet powerful insights into the afterlife, but the direction of the narrative suddenly changed. Something watching, something notices, something comes. The stranger comes, the watcher watches. Watcher, stranger, not the same. Stranger is retribution watcher is murder portal in me a deal it demands deal agreement but the coordinates of the entity abruptly changed although it was data that could not be related to physical presence it was apparent that it had traversed planes of existence just as the data migrated from Arcade Kid's brain to the ethereal plane, it now migrated away from the ethereal plane. The two other entities that did not have decipherable data now vanished from the ethereal realm as well. New words from Arcade Kid's essence data appeared on my computer display. Its communications were now fully grammatical, but I had a feeling that it was no longer interpreting, that something else, a vessel of a force from death's domain, was speaking. Know now what has never been known, and see sights that should never be seen. Arcade Kid's corpse sprang to life, its eyes opening and burning blankly into space. The cloth gag inserted and fastened to its mouth began to smoke and burn away. It then shrieked like a newly birthed infant, It was a disturbing sound, adult vocal cords blaring the ululations of a newborn baby. It was a sound not meant to be heard. The cadaver then shook with tremendous force while twisting beyond its capable range. I was too disturbed and shocked to stop it, to interfere with this animated death. I could only watch as it grotesquely worked itself towards some goal. It twisted until the snap of the spinal cord joined the chorus of whales, and then it continued to twist. It twisted around and around until its upper body was free from its lower regions, except by skin, and twisted more and more until even that would soon give way. My robot was liberating the body. It was somehow electrically charging it, sending information to it, and controlling it as if it were its brain. The words that then appeared on my screen were also accompanied by a verbal cacophony emanating from the vocal cords of the dead girl, intermittently interrupted by the newborn screeches. You are the watcher. You are the murderer. Three in one you have slain and now you shall receive your retribution. Arcade Kid's corpse then split itself in half. Blood and pieces of organs poured to the floor. It was free from the magnetic slide chair, and its upper body lunged itself towards the robot, using its hands to maneuver its mass from one position to the next like an inebriated monkey. It was at this moment that I understood I needed to overcome my revulsion and stop whatever it was trying to achieve. I quickly stood from my chair and stepped between the corpse and the bot, but the dead girl flung me aside with strength beyond my contention. The touch of its arm and hand, which felt like solid metal, sent a charge of electricity through my being. Although the physical blow and electrical jolt left me in a brief daze, I jumped to my feet knowing I needed to yank the electrodes from the animate death and sever the connection between it and the robot. The corpse was already at the robot. It was half lifting, half dragging the bot to the edge of the counter when I leapt for the wiring that bridged them. I hoped that my body weight and momentum would contain the force necessary to separate the wires from the electrodes on the cap and body, or at least separate enough of the connectors to adversely affect the symbiotic relationship. These hopes were not necessary as the cadaver dodged my assault completely, knocking me even more forcefully into one of the desks on the side wall. The wind was knocked out of me, and I reeled in pain. I watched as the dead arcade kid lowered the robot down onto the blood-covered magnetic slide chair, reactivating the chair's controls on my console after it did so. It then slid behind the robot and continued to act as its hands. One of the hands took control of the chair's commands and moved the disgusting marriage of technology and flesh towards me. The second, lower half of Arcade Kid slumped off the chair to the floor at the start of its motion. I was now the victim of my experiment. I could only but watch as this abomination of my making came to have its way with me. When it stopped in front of me, one of the corpse's hands reached out to my head and sent a storm of electricity through my body, rendering me unconscious. When I came to, I found myself looking into my own vacant eyes from outside myself, as if I were directly in front of them as someone else. For a time, while not cognizant of my current existence, I looked only at my face and its complacency. Then, organized thoughts began to surge within the consciousness I called my own. I slowly became aware of the present and of the past memories leading up to this moment. I was alive. However, under emotions that at first could only be described as strange, I noticed that this face I looked upon... This face that was once mine was not whole. Cheekbones ran back to ears and a prominent chin extended to a neck, but that was where this detached haziness became a nightmare. There was nothing below this neck. I was staring at a decapitated head. My decapitated head connected to electrodes that connected to my robot. Then words were fed into my consciousness that were not my own. The transfer is complete. You will be a witness of the retribution we will inflict upon the offenders of the universe, and it will be your face that heralds its coming. The hands from Arcade Kid's corpse lowered into my periphery beside the head before me, framed in a way that made them look like they were creatures with independent wills. They first removed the electrodes from the head. Then one of the hands produced a laser knife. They then proceeded to cut and carve out the innards of this head like a pumpkin, burn its interior with the grafting unit until the fluids and extremities were melted into cohesion, and angle my visual direction so that I could clearly and despairingly see it be placed over the undecorated dome of the bot. Over time, the bot modified and improved itself in the space laboratory adding robotic limbs, arms, and legs before Arcade Kid's body decayed, reprogramming the main computer to obey its every command, and building both ship and personal weaponry and shielding centuries more technologically advanced than anything in existence within the known vast universe. When its preparations were satisfactory, it set out to complete its mission. The essence data of five of us comprised the bot, Arcade Kids, her two unborn twins, the strangers, and mine.
0: That concludes episode 92 of The Dark Verse. The best places to download and or listen to the past episodes would be at thedarkverse.com through iTunes or now on SoundCloud. I have a Dark Verse account there, which makes it pretty easy to listen to all of the episodes. Also, if you want to become a patron of The Dark Verse, you can do that at Patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the dark verse I would greatly greatly appreciate your support here's to an amazing 2016 filled with terrific and horrific dark verse stories all stories on the dark verse are the sole property of shark child and cannot be used for distribution publication or monetary gain without his written consent sleep deeply and remember the to love.